So we are doing a chronological journey through the Gospels, all four Gospels, kind of trying to put them in order. It gets a little uh, difficult at times to kind of mesh the things together, and we'll begin in one of those difficult uh, passages in Luke's Gospel, and you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like, but we're going to begin in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, and then we'll actually, will we? I don't know. Let me look at my notes. Yes, we will. There we go. We're going to begin in Luke, go over to Matthew, and come back to Luke. That is what my head was thinking there, and that's correct. But we begin with Luke talking about a crowd of people coming and gathering to Jesus, coming from various regions, some traveling up to 115 miles just to hear Jesus teach and or to be touched by him or both, and a great multitude of people coming. And Luke placed this right after Jesus came down from the mountain with the 12. Last week we learned of Jesus appointing the 12 apostles of the many disciples that followed Jesus. And we know that there were many who followed them. In one passage of scripture, we'll learn of 70 disciples that Jesus sent out two by two. So there were far more than 12. But he chose 12 from among the many to be his apostles. And Luke has us coming down from the mountain from choosing the 12, that there's a great gathering of the people. Now, Matthew and Mark also have previously talked about a great gathering of the people that's very similar to Luke chapter 6. That's why I said it can be a little bit difficult to kind of mesh it together perfectly. Of course, we are trying to do a chronological journey through the Bible. And this seems to fit in the sense that it is setting up, if we follow Luke's pattern, that Jesus appointed the 12, he came down from the mountain, a great multitude gathered to him, and he began to not only teach and to heal them, but then gave uh, the Beatitudes, the teaching on the Beatitudes to the people. And so following Luke's pattern, uh, picking up in Luke 6, verse 12, he chose the 12 apostles. Verse 17, which we'll begin with today, a great multitude gathered to him. And verses 20 through 23 in Luke's uh, passage, he talks about the beatitude, the blessed are. We're going to look at that from Matthew's gospel. And then we'll come back to Luke. And what Matthew did not do was have these woes that Jesus gave. Luke gave us four blessings, four beatitudes, but he also countered them with four woes. And so we'll come back to Luke to look at the four woes. So we're coming to the famed Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew's gospel, it's three chapters, chapters five through seven for Luke, just really picking up in verse 20 to the end of the chapter. And so we'll be bouncing back and forth for the next few weeks. But just a, a blessed portion of scripture to get into our hearts. Jesus with a gathering of people coming from all over, as I said, up to 115, possibly 115 miles, many of them walking, traveling maybe by donkey or a, a few by cart, but most of them probably walking. It's very dry arid region there in Israel, very mountainous region as well. It's not flat country, not, not at all, but they're all gathering at the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, 
to hear Jesus teach, and he begins to teach this message. And today we'll just begin by looking at the Beatitudes, but a wonderful verse of Scripture, passage of Scripture, really talking about the importance of being otherworldly-minded. We do a prophecy update this coming Wednesday as we look at that. Uh, We're actually taking the Bible and laying it up against the events that's going on in our world. This is called having a uh, biblical worldview. And in the sense, having this otherworldly-minded that we have an eye fixed on the heavenlies. Now, maybe you've heard it said by some that you're so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. But I disagree with that because I do not believe that we can have a correct understanding of the things in this world unless we have a good understanding of eternity and the price of our sin and the work of Jesus Christ and our future reward. And those who do that, they are then of the most heavenly good. And today we want to look at that. I titled this our chronological journey through the Gospels. It's lesson 22. I simply titled it the Beatitudes. We're going to see a great multitude in Luke 6 verses 17 through 19. We'll look at the Beatitudes from Matthew 5 verses 1 through 12 and the four woes that Jesus pronounced upon those at that teaching in Luke 6, 24 through 26. And so we begin in Luke 6, 17 through 19, a great multitude that came to Jesus. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with the crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, from the seacoast, from Tyre, from Sidon. And they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. So this is during Jesus' second year of ministry. It's known as the year of popularity or the latter Galilean ministry. And his year of popularity, it really... It concludes with the death of John the Baptist and his feeding of the 5,000. And when we get to that, we'll learn that on the very next day after the feeding of the 5,000, when people showed up for breakfast and Jesus said, all you are is worried about earthly things, that many of the disciples turned from him and no longer followed him. And he talked to them about the bread of heaven, and they were concerned about the bread here on earth. And so having that heavenly perspective versus being earthly-minded versus heavenly-minded. So during the year of popularity, Jesus coming down from the mountain where he had prayed all night, where he had chosen the twelve to be his disciples. And as he came down, a great multitude, a mixed multitude of people. And Luke describes some as disciples, and he described others as a great multitude of people, meaning both Jews and Gentiles gathering together to hear him. So he had Some followers, the disciples, those who believed in Jesus, uh, followed Jesus, and then others who were curious about Jesus. And they traveled from Judea, from Jerusalem, from the seacoast 
of Tyre and Sidon. This would be over at the Mediterranean Sea, just north of Israel. So Tyre and Sidon is not Israel proper. It wasn't even in the nation of Israel, but today it would be in the area of Syria. And as I said, some would travel these great distances, well over 100 miles in a very dry and mountainous region that they could hear Jesus teach and to experience his healing touch. In Luke 5:15, it says, however, the report went around concerning him. All the more and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So even in chapter 5 of Luke's gospel, we have great multitudes gathering to Jesus. This would continually happen during that seven, second year of his ministry, in the year of popularity. And he had these two different classifications that needed the touch of Jesus, those with various diseases and those who were tormented with unclean spirits. So there was demonic influence at play, and there were those who were just sick because of the result of the fall. And that could happen to any of us because of the result of the fall when Adam and Eve did what God commanded them not to do there in the Garden of Eden, and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin entered into our world, and as a result of sin came death and the process of death. Uh, we go through that process of dying, and sometimes it takes us a while to get there. And we want to live long lives, of course, but uh, in the process of life, there's hardships, there's illness, there's sickness. But also he referred to that demonic influence. And whatever the case, the Word of God tells us here, they were healed. The whole multitude sought to touch him. Power went out from him. He healed them all. Now, only Jesus could know the difference between that which was normal sickness, that which was demonic. And I think today we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, of, I think, as a pastor, as believers in Jesus Christ. It's good to pray for the wisdom of God to understand that which is just of natural decay because of the fall, the natural processes that we have in this world because of the fall, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, but also to understand those demonic influences that are in the world. I've mentioned before I began teaching about our prophecy update coming up on Wednesday, talked about the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization, and they are trying to get this world under a global blanket, a one-world government. Well, I can tell you in the book of Revelation, it talks about the world coming under a one-world government. When that happens, the Antichrist will be at the helm, and that is purely demonic at the end times demonic in nature are there demonic influences trying to shape and mold our world right now i would say absolutely so is everything that's happening in our world of a demonic influence probably not but god has a timeline that we do not know when things will take place but god has a timeline and we are slowly marching toward the end of those days. So power went out. And according to Jesus, reading a prophecy from Luke chapter, 
4, verses 18 through 19, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 60, 61, verses 1 and 2, where he there said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That could be that demonic influence to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The power of Jesus is still available to heal those who reach out to him in life-saving faith. So people sought Jesus. Last week we closed our service with several of you standing and lifting up your hand towards Jesus. And I believe to this day the power of Jesus Christ is available to hear, to heal those who reach out to him in life-saving faith. Sometimes we need to be obedient to the, man of Christ, to the command of Christ that that healing might come. So that power is still available. Many gathered around. He healed them all. Now let's go ahead. And, now Luke continues with the Beatitudes in verse 20, but we're going to look at it from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, picking up in verse 1. So this is Matthew's account. Picking up in verses 1 and 2, he begins this teaching that will take Matthew three chapters to give us all the information from Christ. But the Beatitudes, they consist of eight declarations of blessedness made by Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And these eight declarations of blessedness, they all begin with the word, it's a Greek word, that means blessed are, blessed are. And this Greek word, can it can speak about the spiritual well-being a prosperity, a deep joy of the soul. And each beatitude, it reveals the believer's present condition or position and also his future reward. So a believer's present condition in this world, but also our future reward. From a worldly perspective, the blessed are those who are fortunate, they're well off, Maybe they're driving around already in those electric cars that they soon won't be able to charge, but they consider themselves blessed. However, from a biblical perspective, the blessed are those who have found this spiritual well-being, this prosperity, this deep joy of soul. So we begin in verse 1, seeing the multitudes. He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So... They're at the Sea of Galilee. It's one of the lowest points. It's not the lowest point. The Dead Sea is one of the lowest points on the earth. But the Dead Sea is fed from the water that uh, comes from the mountains, three different mountain sources that come into the north side of the Sea of Galilee as they come out of the Sea of Galilee at the bottom into the Jordan River. It flows to the Dead Sea. This is not in my notes, but it's a good point to make. The Sea of Galilee to this day is teeming with life. The Dead Sea is dead. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. It has the highest salt water content 
Uh, you don't want to get it in your eyes when you float around in the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee has an inlet and an outlet. The Dead Sea only has water flowing into it. No outlet. In a believer's life, I think it's so important that we have the Word of God flowing in and that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are effectively allowing the Spirit to work in our lives that it's flowing out. And in that sense, we can team with life. We can have life and the life of Christ that He desires from us. But if all we're doing is coming to sit on a Sunday morning, allowing the Word of God to flow in, but there's no outlet, we'll be just as good as the Dead Sea where there is no life. So that's a, a little lesson. That's not what I wanted to tell you, but that's what you got. What I wanted to tell you is that in that region, the Dead Sea there, uh, the area surrounding it, the hills, the foothills, go up to some 1,200 feet. So when he went up on the mountain, and it's... I think it's 8 miles across and 12 miles long, but you can be on uh, the east side of the Sea of Galilee and you can see at night, you can see the lights in Tiberias all the way across the lake. And so Jesus is on the north side near Capernaum. Capernaum is just ruins today, but he's in that region near Capernaum. And going up on the mountain just means that he went up a little bit a ways there and began to teach. And Jesus sat and began to teach the people. In verses 2 and 3, it says, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So the Greek word that's translated as poor, it refers to someone such as a beggar who cannot make it without help from someone else. See, in the Bible, there are a couple of different Greek words that can be translated as poor. There are the working poor who through the week, they can work and bring provision for themselves and their families. And by the end of the week, they may not have anything left over, but they have brought everything that their family needs to survive. They can clothe them, they can feed them, they can shelter them, but pretty much that's about it. This Greek word that's used here is a word that refers to someone who cannot make it without help from another. And they can work all week. Here it specifically refers to in the Greek a beggar. Without the help from someone else, they are incapable of supplying their daily need. This is the word that the Lord chose. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We cannot make it apart from the work of Christ in our lives. Jesus said to those who are poor in spirit, it describes the condition of every man, woman, and child here on this earth. But to those who are the poor in spirit, unable to make it by themselves, Jesus says theirs is the kingdom of God. That is for only those who recognize Jesus as their Savior. James would say in James 2, 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, God has not chosen the poor of this world to be, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. 
So the poor in spirit are those who recognize that they cannot make it apart from the work of Jesus in their life. And to those who do that, Jesus said, Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And the second beatitude, those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4, for for they shall be comforted. Now, we have all mourned in many ways, different circumstances, and we will mourn again in maybe other ways or circumstances. That's a given in this life. But it's only through Jesus that we can find true comfort. The Greek word for comfort here is parakleo. It means to call near. So someone comes near in time of need. It's actually a legal term of someone coming alongside to assist you in maybe a legal matter. But we get this sense of a comforter, someone who comes near to put their reassuring arm around us. In the context of our passage, we know that the one who draws near to us is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to comfort us. And the Apostle Paul took this, remember the Sea of Galilee illustration that I was not planning on giving? the inlet and the outlet necessary for a fruitful life. I think Paul picked up on this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us, the inlet, and then we take the comfort that we have received from God, the outlet, and we comfort others. So the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The third beatitude, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. According to Westbrook, Webster, according, I tried to put a P in there, it doesn't work. According to Webster, and not the current online dictionary, we have to go back a ways to get this one. To be meek talks about being submissive or humble. One of the Greek scholars adds lowly to this. So we could describe those who are meek as being gentle, considerate, unassuming. Therefore, one who is meek could be described as one who is submissive. They have humility. They are lowly. They are gentle. They are unassuming. They're considerate to others. According to Jesus, these are the qualities of those who will inherit the earth. In Hebrews 9.15, it says, For this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal, of the eternal inheritance. So the proud, they do not, will not, they think they dwell. Ultimately, they will not inherit the earth. The proud cannot. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And there are many proud people in this world that think, The world is uh, in their control. And it doesn't take long to discover that it's not. It doesn't take long to have things 
completely go out of control. And I think we've seen that in the last few years here in our own nation, but we're seeing it happening throughout the world too. So be meek. Ultimately, Jesus says, you shall inherit the earth. Our next beatitude, and we come to in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Today it seems that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are a minority and rather than the majority. People are really not concerned too much with others. The majority, they're seeking their own pleasure rather than the pleasure of Jesus and his will over their lives. Yet the righteous are those who hunger and thirst for something that we cannot obtain in our own flesh. We hunger and thirst for righteousness that only Christ can give to us. Jesus then accomplished for us that which we could not do for ourselves by saving us in his own righteousness and through his work upon the cross. And those who hunger and thirst in righteousness, Jesus promises they shall be filled. So in our home, Lily talks a lot about prices in the grocery stores these days. And uh, this week, I'm just trying to lose some weight, so I went on a two-meal-a-day week and surprisingly did fairly well in only eating twice a day. My one grandson was like, how can you do that? And Lily said, it might be something that we're going to have to do because affording three meals might get tough. So she keeps talking about the cost of grocery store. I go sometimes with her to the store. I see it as well. And the cost of things costing more, of course. Our focus, though... Matthew 6:33 Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So in this world we have those who are only concerned with earthly goods. And we should be concerned. We should have wisdom in how we spend our funds that the Lord gives us, how we can provide for our family, still support work and ministry in this life and just have wisdom in those Areas. I'm not saying don't disregard those things. We have to be concerned with those things. But the word of God says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that really speaks about someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness because it's a righteousness that is apart from ourselves. Our next beatitude, verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Now, we are not to be merciful to others in order that we might obtain mercy from others. That's not why we are to be merciful. We're to be merciful to others because we have already obtained mercy from our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is impossible for us to rightly show mercy apart from Christ working through our lives. And even with that, it is possible that we will err in showing mercy. We'll not always get it right. But I would rather err 
on the side of showing mercy to others and to be wrong in doing that than to judge and condemn someone that has truly repented of their wrong. Better to show mercy because we desire mercy and have received mercy from our Savior Jesus Christ than to not show mercy at all. So sometimes in life, you know, we'll have difficulties determining the works that we should do, how we should serve others. But my dad taught me a lesson many years ago that I've never forgotten, and that is in the case of helping others. He said, I would rather help someone even if they're trying to take me. And uh, he would rather help them than to err in that. And basically he said that if they're lying, they need help. My dad was a pastor, so people come to the church. They're always, not always, but oftentimes you have people coming and seeking help from the church. And sometimes we're able to help, sometimes we're not able to help. You need wisdom in that area. Uh, Again, the wisdom of the Lord, discernment. But my dad said, I'd rather err in the side of helping others If they're lying about it, then that's between them and God. But at least I helped in that area. So the Word of God tells us in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassion fails not. They are new every morning. So with the Lord, we get a fresh start every morning. I mean, we're once saved, I believe, once you come into saving faith in Jesus Christ, that the Lord is with you. You don't have to renew that salvation every morning. But His mercies are new every morning. They're fresh every morning. We kind of get a reset every morning with the mercies of the Lord being bestowed upon us. And we should then be merciful to others that the mercies of God would have that fresh, reoccurring mercy upon our lives each and every day. Truly, our mercy toward others need not be deserved because His mercy toward us has never been deserved. Our next beatitude, verse 8, the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I believe that as descendants of Adam and Eve, as descendants of Adam and Eve, I do not believe that we evolved here on this earth from apes or monkeys or some other creature. I believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created humanity in the image of God, in the image of God, male and female. That's another issue that we could talk about. Male and female, he created them. Lily and I, was we were watching an old movie with our grandson, Josiah, this week. And this couple was talking about adoption. And he said the father, well, he wasn't a father yet, but he would become a father. Um, He kind of said to the wife, what kind of adoption? She says, so far, this is an old movie from the 1950s. There's only two choices, male or female. And Lily's like, see, they got it right back then. Only two choices, male and female. But I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We didn't evolve, that we are not here by happen chance, but we are here because of God's design. Man fell in the garden as a Descendants of Adam and Eve as a result of that fall, yes, 
uh, we have this heart condition. It's called sin. And sin separates us from God. Jesus came to pay the price of our sin through his work upon the cross that he might give us new hearts and new spirits. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And those whose hearts are made pure through faith in Jesus Christ, the word of God promises one day we will see the face of God. And blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers are those in this world who try to bring harmony between others. It could be between family members. could be, be in our communities, in our state, in our nation, in the world. And there are many who attempt throughout this world to bring peace apart from God. And though their efforts may be noble, the peace that they attempt to bring, if God is not part of the process, is a false peace that is built on a fallacy that humanity can improve their situation apart from God. Jeremiah 6.14 says, and this is talking about the prophets, the priests in Israel. So really a condemnation against the religious rulers. But it can go beyond that as well. Political rulers could also play in this as well. Jeremiah 6.14 says, They have healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And we have those in this world who are trying to bring peace, but they're trying to do it apart from Christ. And they will not have success. Our only hope is in the Prince of Peace who gave his life to bring us into a harmonious relationship with God. For those who have found the peace of Christ, we are those who are to strive to be peacemakers that we might be called the sons and daughters of God. And then he says the eighth beatitude. We may not like this blessed are. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Verses 10 through 12, he really expands on this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, when they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Although persecution is nothing that we desire, when it comes... We have this assurance from Jesus that our reward in heaven will be great. Persecution, it really places us in some good company. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul, when writing his last letter, in the last epistle that we have in the Bible, he's writing it to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 through 15. He said to Timothy, yes. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. What a guarantee. <laughs> Those who want to walk in the ways of Christ, you're going to suffer persecution. And remember, Paul's writing this from prison. 
But evil men, verse 13, and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, 2 Timothy 3:14, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, verse 15, that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. But you must continue. For those who are uh, teenagers or younger today, but teenagers hearing this, those who are in their 20s, maybe in their 30s, those things that you have learned, Paul talking to a young man, possibly in his later 20s or 30s by this time, the things that you've been learned, been assured of, knowing them from childhood and the Holy Scriptures, that they are able to make you wise. Uh, the importance of having that biblical worldview. We have a world that has a whole different perspective of things, and I can tell you that in our world, they want nothing to do with this book. They want nothing to do with it at all. But I believe that if we look through life through the lenses of Scripture, John, you won't be able to see a thing. No, I'll see perfectly clear the things that I see, need to see in this life through the lenses of the Word of God. Thus we must hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness that Christ gives before all others. For those of us who have put on the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are to rejoice, we're to be glad, because he promises that the kingdom of heaven is ours. And blessed are those who look to Jesus and his future reward. Now let's jump back for our last point to Luke's gospel because he adds something that Matthew does not. He gives us four woes. He gives it a great balance. He only did four of the Beatitudes. He only dealt with the poor, those who hunger, those who weep, and those who are hated. And he counters these four with four woes against those who do not believe. And it's something that Matthew did not do, so I believe it really gives a great balance to the Beatitude teachings. He says to those who are rich in Luke 6, 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now, it is not a sin to be rich, to have great wealth. And we read of many saints in the Bible who were blessed greatly by God with many earthly riches. It is a sin, however, to place your trust in your riches or your worldly wealth. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, we'll look at this at a later date, but just a kind of a preview of this. Jesus told a parable of a certain man who had a bumper crop one year. And so he decided the wise thing to do would be to tear down the old barns, to build new ones. And then he said, this rich man said to himself, Luke 12, 19 through 21, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then, though, then whose will those things be that you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Woe to you who are rich, 
for you have already received your consolation. This is talking about those who have placed their trust in their earthly riches. God says, Jesus says, this is all you're going to get. If you want that vacation home on Hawaii, right now the medium price of a home on the island that my son and daughter-in-law and granddaughter live on, Kauai, uh, it's up to $1.2 million. Their taxes are a little lower, so maybe you can justify that a little bit. A $1.2 million home, mm, probably about a $300,000 home here. But take what you get. If you want it here and now, God said that's what you're going to get. On the other hand, Paul, again, in his first letter to Timothy, gave instructions to Timothy. Talking about the rich, in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, he said, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. So here we find Paul commanding Timothy, a pastor in his church, tell those rich people in your church not to be haughty, a friend of mine many years ago, on the same Sunday in their church, in a church in Libertyville, one of the more wealthy people at that church pulled up in a brand new convertible Mercedes. And my friend pulled up in his brand new Toyota. I forget the uh, model of the car that he had, but it wasn't much to look at. But his little boy, about three or four years old, saw all the people looking at the Mercedes, and he let everybody know that his dad had a new car, too. Oh, that's nice, little boy. <laughs> it was just a car to him. Shouldn't it be that way for us? It's just stuff, and that stuff is just going to burn on this earth. Lay up that foundation. That's what Paul is talking about to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. We want to store, store up that foundation that we're laying hold of the eternal life, not the things in this life. He goes on, the second woe, verse 25, actually the second and third woe in one verse. We'll begin in the beginning. Of that verse, verse 25, Woe to you who are full, for you shall be hung, for you shall hunger. So Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, told another parable, Jesus, told of a certain beggar and a certain rich man. And the rich man, Jesus said in Luke 16, 19, that he was clothed in purple and fine linen. He ate the best food every day of his life. In contrast, Jesus said there was a man named Lazarus that laid at the gate of the rich man, only desiring to be fed of the crumbs that fell from his table. Making matters worse, Jesus said that the dogs came and licked his wounds. 
But after this life, when both men died, their roles reversed. Lazarus was carried up by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man found himself in the torments of Hades. So Jesus said, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall hunger. And we find this role reversal with the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man in the torments of Hades, Lazarus being comforted by Abraham. And here's the thing. The rich man could look up and see what was happening. He could talk to Father Abraham. And he asked Father Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his fingers in water that he could cool his tongue. Now, if you're in the torments of hell, I don't know what a little dipping of water on your tongue would much do. Could you have Lazarus bring down like several gallons of water, please? He was asking just for a little bit. But the role reversal, the response of Abraham, Luke 16, 25, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received many good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And then he asked, begged Abraham, send someone back. Send someone back to warn my brothers I don't want them to come to this place. Here's the thing that I've heard since I was a teenager. Man, if I'm going to hell, all my friends will be there. You know what? A guy who was in hell said, I don't want my family to be here. Send someone to tell them, to warn them. And then Abraham responded and said, even one who has risen from the dead they would believe such a one. So the rich man tried to say, send someone back from the dead. And Abraham responded, Luke 16, 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one is risen from the dead. I tell you today that one has risen from the dead and there are many who remain unpersuaded and they do not believe. So the second woe, as he said to us, woe to those who are full, they shall hunger. In verse 25, the third woe, woe to those who laugh now, for they shall mourn and weep. Now, laughter is not a bad thing. I had two of my grandsons over the other night on Friday, and I uh, did something that had us bust. I had tears. I was laughing so hard. It took a while to slow it down. Laughter is not a bad thing. The idea of this laughter is a sense that signifies a self-affirmation or a confidence apart from God. In the sense, they're laughing at God. And that's a bad thing. Those who are without faith in this life, they laugh at the things of God. There are those people who says, if I'm going to hell, at least my friends will be there. And in the... In this, they are laughingly disregarding the great grace of God. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we are to boldly come to the throne of God, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need. They're laughing now, but Jesus said they're going to mourn, they're going to weep later. One day their laughter will be turned to mourning and weeping. They'll discover that God is real. 
and that they have forsaken the mercy and the grace that's only available through his son, Jesus Christ. So James counsels us in James 4, 9 and 10, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be torn to mourning, turn to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Jesus is not saying that we should never laugh. We should never have joy. But life is more than these things. Therefore, we need to have a proper perspective of the earthly things versus the heavenly, that biblical worldview. And then finally, in verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Here's the danger. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So the first, fourth woe deals with the praises of men. And praises are a tough thing to take. I mean, we all want affirmation. It's kind of, you know, did I do good? Wives, uh, you know this for your husbands. Don't they sometimes just want that affirmation? Look what I did, honey. I washed the dishes. Oh, so good. (laughs) We're all seeking that affirmation. Look what I built. But there's a danger there. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. Jesus likened them to their forefathers who spoke well of the false prophets. They, Jesus in the Gospels, will learn at one point that he will tell us that the Jews of his day even built statues to the prophets that their forefathers killed. They just had it backwards. They spoke well of the false prophets who had it all wrong. And for their forefathers who killed the prophets, they built statues to the prophets that their ancestors had put to death. They had it all backwards. Jesus is warning that just because others speak well of us, it does not mean our ways are right. We have to be careful in those great words, Second Peter 2, 18 and 19, for when they speak of great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, one who actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by is also put into bondage. We need to be careful. Great swelling words. As a pastor, people sometimes come to the church, they call the church looking for help. And when it begins with, I have heard about you guys and the work that you're doing in our community. And I'm thinking, no, you Googled our name. (laughs) You don't even know us. I doubt if you've heard of us. When it begins with those great swelling words, man, the antennas go up, red flag. They're trying to take us. In the words of my dad, I'd rather help. (laughs) I have that battle to this day. John tells us in 1 John 4, 5, and 6, they are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. 
He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We need to be careful in this world. There'll be those who lift us up. If they lift us up, we need to ask why. Is it for good reason or is it for something that we shouldn't be praised for? In a day and age when many people are concerned with their social media followers, how many likes they have? How many people liked my page? Or the dislikes? Jesus reminds us that it's better to be hated, excluded, reviled, to have our names cast out than to be well spoken of on this earth and lose our heavenly reward. For such hatred from others places us really in good company, not only the prophets who are before us, but Jesus who said in John 15:18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And those who are merely looking for earthly things will never find their heavenly reward. So maybe it seems odd to us that Jesus describes those who are poor in spirit, the mournful, the meek, the hungry, or thirsty, those who are persecuted. He describes them as blessed. Yet Jesus concluded each of these conditions with the promise of absolute surety that their condition Our condition is only temporary. So to the poor in spirit, he said, they shall obtain the kingdom of heaven. To the mournful, they shall find comfort. To the meek, they will inherit the earth. To those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus said, you will be filled. The merciful, they shall obtain mercy. The pure in heart, we will see God And the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's go ahead and stand. And Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us here today. As we prepare our hearts in one last song of worship, I pray that you would minister to us this day. As Pastor Kevin comes forward, for those who might have prayer needs, as we have uh, prayer benches here in the front where people can just come and kneel and pray. We've asked, Father, that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts today. The Beatitudes, the blessed are. Lord, maybe we've went through this list of eights and the list of four, the four blessings, the four woes. And in that listing, Lord, we found out that we are, we are failing in some of these areas, maybe in all of the areas, maybe only in one. But Lord, you're challenging us. You desire to do a work in our hearts today. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that work. Let us, Lord, open our hearts to you this day, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.